Welcome to Parent Talk Podcasts, where experienced parents and expert guests give tips and tricks on making parenting a breeze. Well, at least a little easier. Now here is your host, Genevieve Kyle, and co-host, Heather Fox. Hi everyone, welcome to Parent Talk, broadcasting out of the greater Vancouver area. Parent Talk is a conversation that supports and encourages moms and dads. Our show is a great way to connect and bounce ideas off of other parents going through similar experiences, helping us be the best parents we can be. If you have a question you would like to join us on our show as a guest or as an expert, please visit us at the contact us section on our website at parenttalk.ca. I'm Genevieve Kyle. I'm the producer and your host of Parent Talk. I'm a 41-year-old new mom of a one-year-old little boy named Alexandre, and I am a registered dental hygienist. Today, we are talking about understanding children's behavior. Let's go around the table and introduce ourselves. Hello, everyone. My name is Heather Fox, and I'm your co-host of Parent Talk. I am 40 years old and a new mom to baby Hudson, who is now one years old. I am a stay-at-home mom. However, my background is in early childhood education, and I am a former owner of Jimbury Play Music. Hi, everyone. My name is Bridget Miller. I'm a local mom in Port Moody, and I have two teenage girls. I have a background in education, special education and psychology, and my work is in helping parents and educators make more sense of their children. Well, thank you, ladies, for being here. I'm really excited about today's subject. I want to dive in into my first question right away. So what do children want us to know about their behavior, Bridget? I think the most important thing is that children are hoping we'd understand that their behavior is communication. All behavior is communication, but I think as parents of little children, tiny babies, we seem to know that intuitively. And because they don't have the gift of language yet, what we do is we naturally move to read their behavior so that it gives us cues on how to take care of them. Um, when they get a little bit older and they start speaking for themselves, we tend to expect them to express themselves in words and we tend to not really put too much of our focus on understanding behavior. So we shift the dynamic in the sense that we want them to tell us what's the matter or what they need from us or what we can do to make them happy rather than being in the position of observing behavior and taking it as cues as to what it is that we need to be doing to help them. Um, I think what happens as well is when they get a little bit older, they start walking and talking like we do and we tend to take adult psychology and we put it onto children. And the big mistake in that is that they aren't developmentally as mature as we are. They haven't had the gift of time and experience and development. But the things that we're doing and asking of them are beyond their capacity of giving us because of where they are developmentally. What should parents do when they are concerned about their children's behavior? The first thing would be, I would say, is not to get too pulled into the behavior. I think as caring parents, what we do is read too much into behavior and that can throw us off on a tangent because we start looking for what to do, quick fix solutions. Um, children's behavior is there to give us indications of what it is we could be doing to help them, but we tend to misread what's happening and we assume what's happening rather than putting our attention on, well, where is this behavior coming from? So as parents, what we need to be doing is possibly spending a little less time of trying to fix things and make things work, make children do things the way we want to do things, 
and just buy ourselves a little bit more time and observe what are the patterns of behavior that are we seeing, what are the things that are concerning us, and from there we'll find our way. So Bridget, uh, which age group are you thinking right now? Well, I think with behavior, what we need to remind ourselves is that we're always going to see behavior. Um, one of the things we need to remember is that behavior is going to come out um, regardless of our age. What can happen is children do grow older. So in terms of their physical development, they are older, but they might have the behavior that we would consider to be more fitting of a younger child or a, a baby, toddler. So we must never be too distracted by the behavior in the sense that it's not necessarily going to match up with their chronological age. Um, one of the things I love that Dr. Gordon Neufeld often says is that um, we all grow older, we don't all grow up. And that speaks to development in the sense that, yes, our bodies do get bigger and the expectations that are put on us are bigger. But if we don't have the benefit of emotional maturity, we're going to see immature behavior. And that's why it can be so distracting in children because we, we look at what age they are and we expect more of them not understanding that sometimes emotionally they aren't capable of giving us what it is that we're asking for. That's really interesting. Yeah, and one thing I found, especially over the last kind of decade of working with many families at Gymboree, is sometimes the, the children that were maybe a little taller for their age or a little bigger for their age, again, parents that didn't know their actual age or other adults around them, again, set expectations up to be higher. And like a child that looked five, but was actually only three, they're like, why is that child not listening? Or why is that child behaving that way? Well, they're actually only three years old. They're not five. And so that makes it a little hard even for those children, just because physically they look older. So then we expect more and yeah, it's not fair to the child. Why do some uh, ways of stopping unwanted behavior seems to work with some children, but not with others? Well, again, it goes back to taking general solutions and trying to apply them to unique children. When we don't understand emotionally what's going on for our unique and individual child, we'll take one-size-fits-all solutions and try and apply them to children. And I think in our modern parenting age, we tend to fall on the side of looking outside of ourselves for answers. So it's very easy when we're feeling a bit overwhelmed by behavior and concerned. We go to things like Google and we search for solutions. And then that leads us astray. Oh, you call all your mom's <laughs> friends, right? And then you're trying to like be Mrs. or Mr. Doctor and try to find the solution, which is not always what works for other people that will, be, that will be working for your family, right? So I think it's another area we have to be careful with, but definitely Dr. Google, we have to be careful <laughs> there. There's, there's a lot of good to be found out there, you know, but the problem is when we're overwhelmed ourselves, We'll, we'll try things that maybe are not appropriate for the child that we're, we're interacting with. And then when it doesn't work, we look at them and we think, well, there must be something wrong with you. So I need to find something else. And then we undermine our, you know, our, our belief in ourselves, thinking there must be an expert out there who can fix my child, when really often what it comes back to is just understanding where this child is developmentally and then meeting them there. And um, I think that's up to us as parents to figure out, but we have to find our feet first. 
when we ask too many others, what do they think? Of course, they're going to tell us. <laughs> but who's to say that that's going to, you know, help what it is that we're trying to address in our own homes? Yeah, it's hard. Everything, every uh, children are so different and they all have their little personality. And I think you have to respect that too, right? Mm -hmm. So why do quick fixes or general solutions not seems to work long term, Bridget? Well, because we have to remember what we're ultimately aiming for is growing our children into become mature adults. And quick fixes, although they can change behavior in the short term, there's no guarantee that it's going to get us where we want to go with our children in the long term. So what we have to remember is that our children have to be able to feel what's not working for them. And in order to feel when things are not going their way, they need a, an emotional system that's really working well. We can take quick fixes and um, spook children into doing things, but what we're doing is overworking their emotional system, which means they change their behavior in order to avoid what's going on, as opposed to really learning as to the why it's not working and feeling why it's not working. We forget that learning is very much an emotional process, especially when we're little. Um, children have to have an emotional system that's working really, really well so they can feel the sadness and vulnerability and the, all the things that don't work for them throughout their day. And when you're a young child, that's a lot. There's a lot of sadness in that. So quick fixes, although they can alarm a child, move them to change the behavior short term, it's not really addressing what it is that's going on for the child. What's a quick fix? Can you give me an example? Well, a quick fix would be something like a timeout. You know, it's a technique and we're applying a general technique to this unique child, not always understanding that it might not work for them in the way that we're hoping it's going to work for them. So that would be a quick fix in the sense that it's a one, two, three, you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do the next thing. And if you do it properly and correctly, the child will learn their lesson. But that's coming from a very behavioral approach It's not addressing, well, what is really happening for that child when they are separated for us from us? Are they learning their lesson because it's sinking in for them? Or are they just learning they need to change their behavior in order to be able to be in our presence again? Because it's all about our love, right? They want to be with us. They like sending them on timeout is uh, keeping them a little bit away. So for them, this is what's difficult, right? Yeah, I mean, a primary need for all of us is to be close to those that we love the most. And from a child's perspective, especially when they're younger, they need us and they rely on us so much. And our physical presence is what calms them down and brings their system to what we call rest. And when their systems are at rest and they feel close to us, they're able to learn and grow. But when we use that against them, what happens is we again, we alarm their alarm systems And then they, they change their behavior because they know they have to work for our love. How can parents discipline their children and still protect them and grow the relationship with them? Well, again, it's, it's reminding ourselves that ultimately what we're wanting is a long-term relationship with our children. Like We all, I think, have this vision of our children growing up and wanting to come home to us when they're older. But for that to happen, we have to make sure that we preserve that relationship We want to deepen their attachment to us because we're the ones who are there from the very beginning and we're invested in the long-term outcome. We have to be sure that we're preserving that relationship 
and growing it in a way that it works for them, that they can develop and become who they're capable of being. So Heather, when you were at the Gymbury, did you notice any behavior that made you think a little bit and you kind of took like mental note as a mom in the future, I will be doing this or... (laughs) I'm going to stay like away I just, yeah, from I, that. I, I yeah. felt like I was in like a 13-year parenting program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely, you know, kind of was able to have a chance to observe parents with children, moms with children, dads with children, families with their children. And it was really interesting to see, um, you know, how the one parent would act, how their children's behavior was. Um, sometimes you would see one parent with that child a lot and, you know, the parent, or sorry, the child would be acting a certain way and then all of a sudden dad would come and then you'd be like, oh, <laughs> maybe this is why, you know, mom is extra lenient because dad is like super strict. Like, so you kind of see different compliments of parents, not that that was a good solution, but like you'd go, why is this child like kind of almost like walking all over his mom in class kind of thing, not listening at all. And then, yeah, dad would come to class and it was a very strict and not nurturing and so it's like mom was overcompensating so that's one kind of dynamic I would see um other ones were parents that just there was zero follow-through with their children and that was one thing I was like oh that doesn't seem to work very well again children just you know didn't have the best behavior necessarily but you know mom would threaten all these different things but nothing would happen and then the behavior just seemed to continue so one um i guess really positive thing that i did see throughout the years was when parents would follow through with what they said and that could be follow through with a positive or follow through with a negative if they weren't behaving they said okay well then we have to you know leave class today early if we're not going to be listening and if we're to mom and the teacher or whatever and if they followed through with that you know you definitely would see a positive change in that child or sometimes again you know it would be a a positive follow-through as well like you know when we have a great class today we're going to sit outside and we're going to you know do some a special coloring book that mommy bought for you and we're going to do that together or whatever it happened to be and then you know the child had something to look forward to but it was kind of neat to see that when they did follow through with things that they had that nice positive you know reaction from the children so I one thing I definitely learned was follow through which is all about you know kind of setting those boundaries and things like that and I mean, everybody wants to be their child's friend, but that was one thing that I think I picked up on. You can't be your child's best friend. You are their parent. You're there to set boundaries. And, you know, and I, for me too, like I'm a person who likes structure and likes routine. So, I mean, I, when everything feels so chaotic for a little one, you can see how they, that, you know, it helps them feel safe when they have those boundaries and a little bit of structure to their day. And I mean, even the classes that we teach at Jimbree, there's routine and that sort of thing. So they learn through that repetition and through that routine. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I would say one of the things we need to always remind ourselves is that we're not really there to be our children's friends. We're there to love them and take care of them and be the people that they need. And that is really a double-edged sword because we have two roles to play. The one is to be that person who says no when no is needed And then I think often what parents forget is that we're also there to comfort them when it doesn't go their way. Um, Parents that I work with often say to me, but, you know, if I've said no and then they cry and then I console them, am I not feeding into it? Shouldn't they just accept no and move on? And the answer from a developmental perspective is no, not really. 
we have to be those ones, and Gordon Neufeld refers to it as being the agent of futility. When we need to be the one who says no, and we need to put a boundary in place, we are the agent of futility. So we hold the no in a, in a firm way, but in a kind way so that the child can hear it. And then when they move to the sadness, or perhaps the aggression, when they want to lash out because they're really upset with what you've said and they don't want it, our responsibility is to hold them in that place and let them feel the sadness sinking in. So when we can be that, we can help them to move emotionally to that place where they go, you never let me do that and you always make me not. What that really does is it's an indication to us, oh, this is sinking in. The futility of not getting their way is sinking in and that's when the learning really occurs. But it's only going to happen if we're there to support them through it and we can be the comforters who say, I know you really, really wanted to stay longer. And mummy said, no, that's not going to work today. We have to go. Jimbery's closing. And then the learning takes place because they felt the sadness in it. Mm-hmm. But they've also had the warmth of connection that says, I know this was hard for you, but we're going to be okay. Yeah, it's so important for the parent to really acknowledge the feelings that their child is going through. And because the child gets so confused by all these different feelings and can be very overwhelming. And so the parent really needs to acknowledge that. Especially true for when we're dealing with very little children. Again, we take an adult psychology and we put it on children. And what we do is we want to explain cognitively to them all the reasons that they can't do it. But we forget the children who want what they want when they want it are not open to hearing logic and reasoning. Not because they don't understand, but because emotionally they don't want to hear what we've said, which is no. So parents often mean very well by giving three very good reasons why we can't do what you want to do. But that's not what's needed. What's needed is an emotional shift for their little systems to realize that mommy said no and she means it. And there's nothing I can do to change her mind. And in that is where we call an adaptability happens in the brain. So it sinks in and that sadness hits the bottom and they sort of go, but then they recover and they've got us there in contact and closeness to help them through it. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how children read our energy and how when we kind of have that heightened energy, that negative energy, things like that, how that kind of affects them? It definitely does. We tend to overlook that. We think that children are listening to our words, but most of the time they're watching to see us. And that's one of the key things when we're parenting our children is that we have to put out that energy of we've got this and we've got you. We've got you. We're going to do this. But what we do sometimes is we are so freaked out ourselves that we put out this energy of panic And very often what we start doing is asking too many questions. What's the matter with you? What can mommy do to make this better? How can I make this stop? And what we don't realize is we're putting the child in charge of the relationship. We're meaning well by asking questions, but what we're doing is expecting them to answer questions that we should be reading in their behavior. So Bridget, I've seen this so many times. What happens... um, when you go to the grocery store and moms or dads have to deal with their children having a tantrum? That's the worst place for a parent to ever be. It's so <laughs> difficult. Don't go grocery shopping anyway. <laughs> no, just don't eat ever again. <laughs> That's why there's delivery. <laughs> yes, we've smartened up considerably. 
you know, again, this comes back to putting children in situations that they're probably not really ready for. Um, of course, we have a life to live. We've got to go places. We've got to do things. And we expect our children just to suck it up and get on with it. And what we're doing is setting ourselves up for a miserable time. We have to eat. We have to get things. So we have to figure this out. Um, again, understanding from a child's perspective, when they see that candy and they're immature, their brain just wants that candy. There's no amount of reasoning and negotiation that's going to settle down their wanting. And this is when their behavior escalates. But it's very often because we're also escalating ours. We start talking a lot, giving them a lot of reasons why this isn't going to work. And for every reason we give, we get feedback from them. They tell us why it will work. And we get sucked down into a rabbit hole. They say one thing and we react with another. And then they say something and then we react. Younger children will just move to that place of, you know, screaming, hissy fitting, doing whatever it is. Not because they're bad kids, but because they are ruled by emotion. So what do we do? Well, as a parent, we take responsibility for what's going on here. This is too much for our child right now. It's not the place to try and teach them the lesson because everything we want to say to them can't sink in right there. Sometimes it requires us to get out of there as quickly as we can, maybe leaving the groceries behind, because we need to preserve their dignity and also ours. Um, I often say as a parent we grow a very thick skin because the minute our child starts what we would call misbehaving, there's a little piece of us that also wants to look around and see how many others are noticing. And then that fuels our alarm system. And then we start losing our brain integration because we start panicking too. And so we're trying to hurry our children through something that's going to take time. If we need to leave, then we need to leave. But understanding that clamping down on a child in, those, in that time isn't going to stop it. Our work is to be done after the situation when we've calmed down, they've calmed down. Maybe we've been at home for a couple of hours. We've had, you know, a meal if we have food in the house after leaving the grocery <laughs> store. <laughs> when we've had bath time, a bit of connection again. The alarm systems have come to a better place of rest. They're more receptive to what it is that we want to say and we're calmer. And that's we can say, you know, that wasn't okay. You know, jumping up and down in the shopping cart and screaming like that. We don't do that. And then those lessons will sink in for them. So which age group are you uh, referring? Because I know with little ones, once it's over, it's over, right? They have already forgotten. So which age group are you thinking? This is very much when we're talking temper tantrums in the, the, the candy aisle. Little children. Okay. Um, preschoolers. And, okay. I mean, of course, we'll have teenagers who have temper tantrums too. They just look a bit different. But it's still coming from the same place. It's the inability to hear the word no and to accept a limit and restrictions, which is why behavior is true for all ages. And it's always coming from that same place. Is this child in a space where they're able to adapt to hearing no? It doesn't matter what our age is. This reminds me of um, one of our mom friends mentioned that, like she's got two little ones. Um, I guess her youngest is... Um, about four months old and her daughter is around two and a half. She's kind of lowered the expectations of what needs to get done during a day. And, you know, there's just kind of no point because of where the age and stage that her children are at that, you know, she tries to now focus on one thing per day 
and make it fantastic rather than trying to pile it all in. So if it's the grocery store or the post office, it's just going to be one event, one thing. And then she really takes time with her kids. And if there's a puddle on the way, they stop and they explore the puddle. And if the little her daughter wants to go visit the, fl- the floral department, they take the time to do that. And just, I think, being in a different energy when you're going there, not so stressed, you're not so rushed yourself, I think helps with the younger ones too when they have to go to do those errands with you, just to kind of make sure you're giving yourself enough time that you can kind of give in to where they need to go and explore Mm. and have some time. That's a really important thing to remember, and that's especially true when we're dealing with little people. Because of where their brain is developmentally, they aren't yet able to accept that reasoning in the moment. But what we can do, and we often forget to do, is to inject some fun into whatever it is. If you're in the shopping you know, their shopping aisle, you're doing whatever it is, and you can read the child's behavior, see that this is not going to go well for much longer. That's when you inject some fun into it. You turn it into a game. Can you spot the man with the red pants? Where can you see something with yellow? What we're doing is using distraction, Mm -hmm. but it appeals to where they are developmentally in that it takes the focus of what they don't want to do. And before you know it, you've done your shopping and you're out of there as quickly as you can which is a whole lot more pleasant than trying to reason with a child Mm -hmm. and tell them why we have to get these groceries or there will be no dinner. In that moment, they don't care that there's no dinner. They want the candy. Yeah, They don't don't want to eat. (laughs) Who cares? So what's the behavior why people go and see you? What's the most popular problem? Um, For the most part, it usually seems to be centered around either anxiety or discipline. Um, typically in the younger children we're looking at discipline parents are very concerned when they see behaviors which would fit a a, a label of being you know oppositional or being defiant or um, it's very much when children are not doing what parents are asking them to do um, which is the constant state of parenting really that totally makes sense huh (laughs) (laughs) So, Bridget, what happened when two parents have different parenting style? Well, it's very seldom that it happens that both parents are on the same page in the very beginning. Um, We each come to our parenting with our own backpacks of how we were raised, and we also bring with it the expectations of what we're hoping to do for our own children. And it can happen that that doesn't necessarily align with the partner. Um, From a child's perspective, it can be confusing because it's two different ways of doing things. But because each child has a different relationship with their parent, you know, one way of being with mum, a different way of being with dad, we can see different behaviours with both. So if we've got mum who's very hard and stern and she clamps down very hard on behaviour, children might contain it until dad walks in the door. And if they have a different sort of relationship with him, that can invite their bigger behavior to come out. And then everyone would look at dad and say, oh, it's because you're not strong or you're not being the boss or you're not being whatever. But we have to remember that children, they have to have a working emotional system. So if we're parenting them in a way that suppresses that emotion, that frustration is being pressed down upon until they're with somebody that they feel that they can let it out with. So it comes to the place of looking... um, different you know we have um, some behavior with dad and different behavior with mum. it can be true for some different kinds of behaviors with the teacher with grandma because it's relationship specific 
So that's the part we have to look back again at. It's, it's the relationship, what's going on here. And how can we invite these children to feel what they're feeling, but also teach them right from wrong? Mm-hmm. I think too, when you're in school, there's peer pressure from their little friends, right? You come back home and then depends who's their mom and dad, depends on the parenting style. And then whoever comes in and out the house, right? So that's why sometimes children goes from one way of behaving to another way. And sometimes even if you're just visiting a place, it's actually interesting to observe. I'm sure you all, mm-hmm. we all mm-hmm. been some places and uh, you notice the change with the people around, with the surrounding of people, right? Yeah, it's very common if you know, as speaking as a teacher, um, you'll have children who come to you and you teach them for the day and you see this sort of what we would call good behavior. They listen, they follow instructions, they do what they asked and then mum or dad arrives to pick them up And it's almost like this little person undergoes a, you know, personality transformation. And, I totally um, see this. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they, again, we forget that when children are away from us, that actually it spooks them a little bit. And so they're not true to who they really are. They're slightly alarmed in a school environment. It's different. The people are different. They don't have their deep attachments with them. But when their deep attachments return to pick them up, that connection is restored And everything they've been holding on to suddenly comes bubbling up to the surface. And then we have these big behaviors and people will look and say, well, you know, you were good for the teacher. Why can't you be good for me? But it's actually a backhanded compliment. When our children are able to release that emotion with us, it's a compliment to the relationship in the sense that they feel safe enough to let us know how they truly feel. But we have to see it like that or we're going to clamp down on them. What should we say to her children when we notice this change of behavior with us? We can't really address it directly because they don't know that it's happening. Remember, this is an emotional state that they're experiencing. So cognitively, they don't even recognize that it's happening. But when we go to pick them up again, especially when we're thinking little children, we have to go in there and know that we might get abysmal behavior. But then our responsibility is to take charge of the situation and scoop them up and turn it into fun and say, come on now, let's go to the car. We don't want to stay there at the pickup place and try and reason with them. That's not the time to say, you need to pick up your own backpack. You're a big boy. I know you know how to carry your backpack. Show me how you can carry your backpack or we're not leaving until you do it. Because we're trying to cognitively teach them a lesson when what they need to do is just feel closeness to us Have us give them the great big hug and say, oh, I can see you've had a horrible day. You look so mad with that. Come on, you can tell me about that on the way to the car. Why don't we stop off and do this or go to the park or we're going to just, you know, talk about what hasn't gone well for you today. And then we move through it rather than getting stuck in it with them. So one thing I would definitely notice um, in our preschool program that we had at Gymboree, um, definitely, as Bridget was saying, you know, sometimes they give you that that different behavior with the teacher and they're very well behaved. Um, so, of course, yes, we'd have those little ones would come in and they would sit on their little circle and they would listen and follow directions. Anyways, sometimes, though, within a month or two of them kind of being there now, They have, they know the teacher, they are comfortable, and now those behaviors start coming out because they do feel comfortable to be themselves. So in a way, it's like 
you're thinking, oh no, they're not listening to it, but it's actually a wonderful thing because you can tell the parent they are actually very comfortable and they're very, because they're truly being themselves. And, you know, and then you obviously learn to kind of work around that, but, and then it gets better again, but it's really cute. I'm like, oh yes, we were very comfortable today because <laughs> they were, it. yeah. We, we must never take their behavior personally. No. Um, because that's when we kind of bring our own stuff into it. And then we feel, you know, hurt or wounded by it, the way that they're behaving. But when we accept it almost as that backhanded compliment, we're able to do more with it because it's not so personal. At the end of the day, I think um, the whole experience is more calm for the children and the parents if you have have a great time, right? It's always easier if everybody's having a a, a good time, but not to fool ourselves into thinking Mm -hmm. we're ever going to get to a place where we only have good times. Most of the learning happens when things don't go the way that they wanted them to go. And that's true for us as parents as well. We we have such high expectations of ourselves, and I think that puts an extreme amount of pressure on us to want things to be perfect, whatever that is. And we expect our children to, you know, respond in ways that isn't big and messy and upsetting. But that's a vital part of growing up. But it's how we respond to it that's going to make a difference as to whether they grow through it or they get stuck in it. So how do we know if what we're doing is the right thing? Well, there are two parts to that. The first would be to read our child's behavior. If things are getting bigger and louder and worse, as opposed to better over time, that tells you that it's not working. But beyond that, I would encourage parents to take a little bit of time to feel what feels right for them. If you're using a technique or a strategy and you can feel when you're doing it that it doesn't sit well with you, that's your intuition telling you that this is not a good fit for you or for your child. It's all very well that it's been you know, shared by experts who've said this is the way forward, this is what you need to be doing. But as you're doing it, if you know that this isn't sitting well with you, that's an indication to you that you need to revisit it and look for another option because it most likely isn't a good fit for you or for your child. Can you give us an example? Well, from a personal one, for sure. Um, the idea of time-outing my daughter. Um, cognitively, it made perfect sense that if I wanted to change behavior, that's what I needed to be doing. I needed to be putting her there to teach her a lesson. But with every moment I would be doing it, I could feel inside of me that this was screaming, no, 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 this is wrong. But I had these experts in my head who said that this is the way through. This is how to teach a child right from wrong. But it backfired in the sense that it works against relationship. And if I'd paid more attention to that feeling, I wouldn't have tried so hard to do it. Um, When we're implementing these things as techniques, we think it's a one, two, three. We just need to follow that strategy and implement it correctly. But we're not following what's really screaming at us on the inside saying this is not working. This is going against the relationship that we're wanting to have with this child. There has to be another way. So it it requires us to have a soft heart as a parent, to be able to feel the sadness in we're trying so very hard to do what's right for our child and it's still not working. And when we can feel the sadness in that, we're able to move to a place of making another plan, looking for something. And that's One thing I would encourage all parents to do is when you're trying things or looking for different solutions, when you read it, does it resonate with you? Does it make sense? 
is this something that sits well with you? Because that's going to be something that you're going to work with and stick with. Um, if it doesn't feel right, it isn't right. And it's there's something out there for you that is. So for those parents that um, are listening to this and it resonates with you, I would highly recommend that you have a visit um, on the internet to the newfeltinstitute.org. And there you'll find more of Dr. Gordon Newfelt's work. And you'll also find resources from Dr. Deborah McNamara, who's written a wonderful book on the developmental approach, um, specifically looking at the behavior and development of preschoolers. And that's called Rest, Play, Grow. And you can find the link on parenttalk.ca. That totally makes sense, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well... Uh, thank you, ladies, for being here. And I think that was an amazing podcast. Um, I think, Heather, it's time for a conversation card. Can you please pick a card and read it to us? All right, ladies. So, which school subjects did you think were useful and which ones did you find useless? So we're getting back to school. Back to <laughs> oh, school. Back to go. school. What was useful? What was useless? <laughs> Um, For me, definitely, I mean, English was obviously very useful. (laughs) Um, You know, being able to, you know, read and write and all those things are great. Um, For me, though, the useless ones, like everything had obviously a bit of a purpose, but like going into calculus for myself, not going into science or math or things like that, I honestly, that was... um, very, very unpleasant, and I have never, ever used it since, so calculus was useless for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not taking care of finance in your house? Definitely. Although a budgeting... like Budgeting had, is good? Had they given a basic budgeting math, I think that would have been actually very helpful, but that was never offered. I, th- I think they actually made Like an should, accounting type, that yeah, should, have, that should be in school, because yeah. people need to learn more about that, but no, calc- like calculus, like no... <laughs> No. No. (laughs) (laughs) And for you, Bridget? Well, I think if I had to really think about this, um, well, my husband would say home economics was probably the most beneficial for me because it means that there are meals served in the house. Um, In terms of subjects I didn't enjoy, well, probably chemistry. Um, It probably served a a long-term purpose in that it gets you to university and it gets you to do what you want to do. But the actual being there, I could have done without. It's a bit painful. (laughs) This is kind of funny, but French language is a bit complicated. I mean, Mm -hmm. let's say it, right? So all my years of French did pay off. And then my years of learning English did not. Because when I moved to Vancouver, I did not speak a a word of English. Like I knew yes, no toaster, at the boy. That was about it, right? (laughs) So... Honestly, like I do think back East English courses should definitely be a little bit more in depth or maybe it's better now. I know with the internet now, a lot more people back East speaks English, but when I was studying back then, like no, and a lot of my friends still today don't speak English. What age do they start teaching English in French? Like when you're going to school? Grades are a bit different there, right? There's no grade 12. So I believe in grade, probably grade eight, eight to 11. That's it. Three years. And it's either you continue two years of general studying or you actually pick uh, in technique, they're called. And it's like you become mm-hmm. a hygienist, you yeah. become mm-hmm. a nurse, mm-hmm. you, you know, all the, yeah. the technique trades. trades. Yeah. 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 All right, ladies. Um, thank you again for being here. Thank you for your contribution in other parents' lives. 
For our listeners, the conversation continues on our website at parenttalk.ca. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Podbean. And you can subscribe to this podcast on our website at parenttalk.ca so you don't miss an episode of Parent Talk. Don't forget to review us. Remember, there's nothing more powerful than feeling supported by a community of parents and sharing your thoughts, ideas, and experiences. Parent Talk is a safe space for everyone. Thank you for listening and have a great week. The views and or opinions of the host and their guests are not necessarily those of Parent Talk and should not be considered as fact. The information offered is believed to be accurate but is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice and should not be used for diagnosing or treating any health issue or prescribing medication. If you have any questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your child, please seek assistance from a qualified healthcare practitioner.